Welcome to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Take your assigned seats and listen close as the next hour will have you rethinking the public education system. While you listen to Ross and his guests share their expertise and experiences in the field. Class is in session. Here is your host, Ross Danis. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to Let's Reinvent School with our special guest today, Professor James Guthrie. We also have a special respondent in the third segment today, Dr. Bob Goodman. We'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. Today, we're looking at structural and systemic challenges that are contributing to our schools, not being able to meet the diverse needs of diverse students. What would it take to make school both more effective and efficient? Again, we're not asking what's wrong. Let's ask what's possible. I'm your host, Ross Stanis, president and CEO of MECED, coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And we'll learn more about MECED uh, after the first break. To help us understand how policies impact public education, what we need to change to create the schools our kids deserve is Professor James Guthrie. Professor Guthrie has been a senior fellow at the George W. Bush Institute, the superintendent of public instruction for the state of Nevada, as an endowed professor of public policy and education and education school dean at the University of California, Berkeley, and as an endowed professor of public policy and education at Vanderbilt University, he's currently the Irving R. Melbo Distinguished Fellow at the University of Southern California. He's also a cherished colleague and friend. It's my honor to know him, and I'm grateful that he carved out some time today to join us. Jim, let's begin with the big question. What is possible? Give us some examples of what we would need to change in order to create the schools our children deserve. Is it money? Is it teacher training? Is it more technology? Is it political will? What's the future look like? Ross, uh, what a great question that is and what a wide open field we can explore mm -hmm. together. No matter what technology you look at, no matter what school re reform you explore, uh, no matter what curriculum you think is important or what new teaching technique somehow emerges, over 200 years, there is one thing that makes an absolutely huge difference, and that's the teacher. I know it's outmoded to revert to something so commonplace as to say teachers make a difference, but I suspect that not one of your listeners would disagree that somewhere in your life, somewhere in your career, somewhere in your schooling, there's been one or more individuals who made a big difference in your life. They turned on a light for you, or they inspired you, or they tolerated you, or they guided you, or whatever they did. It was likely some teacher that took a, um, an interest in you and made a difference for you. Well, uh, now it's not just simply intuition that tells us that tuitions, tu uh, teachers make a difference, but uh, the best researcher I know in education policy is Rick Hanushek at, at Stanford University. And Rick's got data sets that just don't end. They're just multiple tens of thousands of teachers and their characteristics and their consequences. And Rick's research makes it evident just flat out evident that there is nothing in the whole education armory that is as important as an effective teacher. That's what we've got to get in front of as many students in our nation as we possibly can. Not just a teacher, an effective teacher. Now, Rick describes or defines an effective teacher as an individual for whom at three years in a row, 
their student test scores exceed what would be predicted based on the social and economic con uh, circumstances of their students. This is a teacher who repeatedly, not once, not by some fluke, not by some silly spike, this is a teacher that he or she routinely gets more achievement out of a group of students than you would anticipate. And uh, he goes on further to make it clear that if an elementary school youngster has the good fortune of having an effective teacher for three years in a row, second, third, fourth grade, third, fourth, fifth grade, whatever it is, if a youngster has an effective teacher three years in a row, you almost can't stop them. They are on a train of success that is, is very difficult to, to derail. Regrettably, the converse is true. If a youngster has an ineffective teacher for three elementary school years in a row, the probability of remediation is very, very low. Mm. It, it just so much has to be done to make up for that. So, uh, what Jim, we if, if I can ask, you know, it, it, it occurs to me that we have a crisis, a teacher education crisis right in the country right now. Just in Mecklenburg County, we've had over 600 teachers resign since August and another 92 scheduled to retire. So, and this is just not a local thing. I mean, we know nationally the numbers are down. In fact, here we've actually turned to guest teachers. Anyone who's 21 years of age with a high school diploma can come in and teach. Um, well, Ross, that story is being repeated, as you suggest, mm -hmm. from big city to little hamlets across across this nation. And the probability is it's going to get worse. I hate to be dismal about it, but it is. And uh, I, I know from firsthand experience, my one of my granddaughters is a fourth grade teacher in, in Berkeley. And I was comparing her salary after three years of teaching with what I made after three years of teaching in 1960, 1965, and my salary, some 35, 45, 50 years ago, my salary as a public school teacher was actually higher than what she makes now. Well, so there, there's 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 not a lot of optimism on the horizon, and as I've suggested elsewhere, the the challenge is far more political than it is technical. We we know what to do. And if we could just get many, some of your listeners will have had absolutely terrific teachers from another era hmm. when women didn't have the choices available to them. Now you look at engineering schools, almost half the enrollees are women. That's something of a revolution. Law school enrollment is more uh, female than, than male. Medical school enrollments now are about equal. Um, business is the same way. So the opportunities for women these days, the talented women are, are can do what they want. In, um, in another era when public schools were particularly effective, they drew their teachers off the top 20% of talent in society, and that is just flipped over today. The circumstances for teaching are so difficult and some so unrewarding that today we are drawing off the bottom 20% of, of mm. talent in our society. And uh, the inducements for changing that are, are slender. I want to return to what you said about political will or its politics. Are you saying that we have the, we know what to do? Is it money? Is it the benefits? Well, in, in part, it's certainly money. Uh, 
but as long as there is the requirement that every teacher, every third grade teacher who has a similar number of units beyond a bachelor's degree and a similar number of years experience, everybody's gonna be paid the same, what we call the single salary schedule. As long as that is in place, and we are unable appropriately and fairly to recognize talent, um, there's no way that teacher salaries are ever gonna match what the private sector is doing. Uh, we're, we're hamstrung by having to pay everybody, good or bad, the same. That's never mm -hmm. gonna get you excellence. Uh, that's heresy, James, you know, I, to talk like that. I understand. You know, unions across the country would be just very, terribly upset. They would be, and to their own detriment. Um, but there is nothing more important than our effective teacher, the, the mm -hmm. speech I just made. And if that's the case, and you want individuals who are capable of doing that, frankly, there's only one medium in society that'll get you there, and it's called money. Mm. I, I know people teach out of love. I got it. And they, they really like students. That's why they're doing it. And there is a certain religious call to it all. I've got that. But fundamentally, down deep, you have to support yourself. You have to support your family. Mm. And that calls for higher salaries. And those who are particularly good at it over a sustained period of time should be rewarded for it. Now, it was my experience that I, it was a suite of attractors that kept me in the teaching profession. It wasn't just money. In fact, making more money before I was a teacher. It was, it was the fact that there was a pension involved. It was a civilized life. Um, it was the life of the mind. And I was treated pretty well throughout the community. I'd get invited to the same parties as the the. Uh, politicians and the lawyers and the doctors and the banks would even give you a reduced rate on your car loan if you, they thought you were, you know if you told them you were a teacher in town so it's it, it is a different day and age you know pensions are a thing of the past um and you know the expectations of teachers particularly around this era of testing has put a strain on them but we just learned last night at a, a cms charlotte mecklenburg schools board meeting that third grade tests only five percent of our black and brown kids are reading on grade level in third grade. Well, um, you're, you're, you're certainly right about the status of teachers in an mm -hmm. earlier era, and that regrettably has passed. I liked your term, a suite of, of emoluments. And one of the, in, in that suite is having a principal who appreciates what I do and supports what I do. We know that almost as important as salary to a teacher is having a, a respectable and able principal. It's very difficult to get your arms around 4.2 million teachers in the United States today. What are you gonna do? It's such a huge number, what are you, what are you gonna do? And then uh, even if you say, well, we're gonna focus on schools of education for which there are about 2000 of them and maybe only 100 of them ought to continue to exist. But if, you can get your arms around principles. There are 100,000 principles in, in the United States. And that, that's a number uh, that if, if you paid particular attention to, their, attention to their recruitment, to their retention, to their reward system, giving them circumstances whereby they could exercise discretion and you can hold them accountable, then we know that a powerful principal recruits teachers. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing that gets you an effective teacher, but that's, that's an important mechanism. Now, if your time permits and your interest dictates, I'd like to come back to your statement about the, the low achievement of, of our minority children. 
because that's, if you looked at American public education today and you say, why does it need to be reinvented? Part of it, as I tried to explain, is getting good teachers into the system. Another part of it is on the equity dimension. Uh, if, if you look at the admission um, qualifications of the teenage youngsters applying to Stanford and Harvard and University of Chicago, et cetera, to our elite institutions, frankly, they are better qualified than any time in history. Now, this is a slice through our society, which doesn't encompass the poor children to whom you, you were referring. So at the very top of the system, it's working pretty well. It's when you dive deeply into the bottom that, that it's not. So let me, uh, if time permits, before we need to go to break, I'd like to separate this a little bit. Sure. Um, in, not in independent, private, non-public schools are about 10% of, of our school age population, about a little over 5 million children mm -hmm. are in hoity-toity schools or, or very good religiously-based schools. Another when you say hoity-toity, is hoity-toity, uh, is that code for private school? That's a technical term. Uh-huh, hoity-toity. <laughs> it encompasses Exeter and yes. Trier, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another 5 million uh, students who are being homeschooled. There are actually more students being homeschooled than are in charter schools. That's a surprise to to many people. And these homeschool students, clearly that's a vast spectrum of good and bad, I know that. But on a, when we can find test comparisons, frankly, they do better than a lot of public school students. And there's a third category, we'll get to charter schools now. And the, the, the brilliant thing or the uh, important thing about a homeschooled youngster, a charter school youngster, or an independent school youngster, they're there by choice. They're there by household choice. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another big set of youngsters who live in effective suburbs, that is their schools are effective. They are in Palo Alto or Winnetka or Nutria or Glencoe or Scarsdale, mm -hmm. stuff like that. These parents who are able to afford uh, good schooling, they move, they, they purchase in their home, they purchase this, so they have choice. Who doesn't have choice in America? Poor people. Hmm. They are in either rural schools where there's not much, their population doesn't justify choices, or they're in big cities, which frankly, I'm, I'm, I, do you really want to trust the Chicago public schools for oh. your youngster? I don't think so. My goodness. So there, uh, I'm, my point is, yes, we got to have effective teachers. And secondly, we've got either to expand choice or find some way to make, make it possible for these low-income students who are presently, in a way, imprisoned by absence of choices, give them a chance at the good schooling that's available to those of higher income. Hmm. Wow. Thanks. Your impressive uh, set of stats, I don't know where you get all this constantly keeping up on everything around the country. You've made some interesting comments. Um, you know, you, you called out Chicago, you called out uh, uh, charter schools as being, you know, an option for many people, an effective option, and uh, merit pay to, to some extent for teachers, which all of that is, is quite controversial in, the, in education circles. Um, 
I did read recently that homeschooling is the fastest growing educational initiative in the country. Yeah. You know, you're right on. Plus, it's interesting how Wall Street's starting to pay attention to homeschooling. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the number of, of computer programs, of curricular advancements, technologies uh, aimed at, at homeschooling parents. You know, it's, it's a a growing, it's a cottage industry, which, which is growing. Ken, uh, but if, if your schedule permits, let's, let's return a little bit to the politics of, of mm-hmm. this. Um, the number of households that have school-aged children in them is diminishing. And as a consequence, the political power or influence of public school parents is diminishing. Mm-hmm and starting to get swamped uh, by all of this. The, uh, but the, if, if most households, 50, 60% of households are in a public school of their choosing or in a private school or public school or homeschool of their choosing, then what's left are the individuals, households that have the least political influence. So if you wanna change the system, You've got to find some way of empowering these individuals who at the moment don't have choice. Mm. That's the challenge. Uh, Despite the fact that districts are creating magnet schools and, um, you know, options for choices within the district. I think that helps a lot. The more schools you have where the children are there because that's what their parents and they chose, then the greater the commitment they have to succeeding in that environment. Now, you know, I like that. And, and creating choice within a public school, I think, is, is a really good thing to do. And I just wish there were more of it. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. I mean, you're brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. All very interesting. We are going to take a quick break to learn about MECED, the Charlotte, North Carolina nonprofit that is focused on transforming the lives of young people who face obstacles. If you'd like to learn more about MECED, you can visit us on the web at www.meched.org. More with Professor Guthrie when we return. Thanks for listening to Let's Reinvent School. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. MechEd's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. We want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places in different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and Mac Ed, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. 
And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different, and what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. My experiences with MECED, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I think I do think MECED is invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students, and it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MECED means opportunity, family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways. We work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections and, and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would 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 do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not. I don't know having someone to talk to and shoulder to cry on. You know, different family. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. Welcome back, everyone, to Let's Reinvent School. I'm your host, Ross Danis, and I hope you enjoyed that little promo for MECED, this wonderful institution down here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're back with Professor James Guthrie. And before the break, we were talking about uh, charter schools and uh, private schools and choice, also effective teachers, what makes an effective teacher. I'd like to turn our attention to some more success stories. Who is getting it right? Where, where can we, what can we do to both educate and inspire our audience? And I know, Jim, you, you, were, you had mentioned this school district that you thought was really getting it right. Yes, um, there certainly are some charter schools that get it right. People, many individuals are familiar with knowledge is power, the KIPP schools. And I think on balance, they do a terrific job. And I'm sure they're, you take uh, Mackie Raymond at Harvard University, who really understands this charter school movement, and, and she can recount the success stories in that sphere nicely. I want to talk for a moment about what you think was a conventional public school, mm. a conventional public school district, even a very large district by <clears throat> many standards. Um, in the United States, we've wobble around between New York City with 1.1 million students all the way down to some 20 school districts in the United States that don't even have any students in them. 
But the, the average size district actually is quite small. It's about 2,000 to 2,500 students. So when I talk about Clovis, California, with 40, 50,000 students, that's pretty big size. It's in the Central Valley um, near Fresno. Started off as a one-room school about 80 years ago, and then the expansion of California population and so forth. It's, it's a big district. Um, it's got elementary, middle, and high schools in it. But what is unique about Clovis is how stunning the student achievement is on California state test. They just are, are near the peak all the time. And this is not a, a, a hoity-toity suburb. This is a school district filled with the children of farm workers and uh, light manufacturing parents in, engaged in light manufacturing. It's not, it's not a wealthy place at all. So what does Clovis do that gets this extraordinary achievement out of its students? Not necessarily, not necessarily in order of, of significance, but, but here is it, its recipe. Um, enormous parental engagement. Mm. Um, the, the school is responsible for entertainment in the community. When they put on plays, I mean, they're scheduled night after night because there's so many parents that, that want, and members of the community who want to participate. Uh, athletics, which is often downplayed by some, is a big deal in the California Central Valley. And for a lot of youngsters, being a good athlete is the way out. And so football games, basketball games, uh, plays, swim meets, track meets, et cetera. Mm. These are all part woven into the school district's outreach to the community. But that's not what happens alone. Teachers are given a lot of discretion to run their classrooms. This is not a mechanical process in Clovis. You're not told, you're, your day isn't orchestrated for you or dictated by by some at 1010, we do this, and 2215, uh, we do, do that. Teachers are treated like professionals. Uh, the highest paid, they're in Clovis, the highest paid teachers are paid what the principals pay. Hmm. You have that, at least that's an opportunity for you. And there is a kind of merit pay there. And by the way, Clovis, with a huge teacher population, is not unionized. And year after year, the teachers actually vote not to be unionized. That's their, their choice. They, they, could, they could be. But they understand that there is a career ladder, that they can participate in it, and there's a chance for them to be recognized, which is important, by their parents, by their community, by their principal, and by their finances, what, mm -hmm. what they're paid. Um, Class sizes are large. To pay for what Clovis does, you've got to find the money somewhere. It's, it's on the California system, and California doesn't pay very much. and doesn't, doesn't generate a lot of money for its public schools. It's actually an embarrassment compared to places like Washington, D.C., where they spend twenty-five dollars to $30,000 per pupil, and California is mired at $15,000, $16,000 per pupil. But they stretch their dollars with huge class size. That's where the, the magic happens. Instead of running pupil-teacher ratios of 10 or 12 students per professional, Clovis is running 25, 30 
students per professional. Mm -hmm. And that gives them a lot of budget flexibility. You'd think the teachers would complain. They know, they know exactly why the classes are big so they can do the other things of significance to them. Is Clovis a, Clovis a model? I don't know. It's an unusual coming together of leadership, uh, innovation, and parental participation. You talked a little briefly about <laughs> principles, the, the importance of a good principle, an effective principle. What are, what are the qualities of an effective principle in your mind? Let's start with intelligence. <laughs> this is not a job for some schmuck. You just, it's too hard. Uh, being a principal takes this intelligence and commitment. This is a, it's not a 40 hour a week job. This is closer to a 60 or 70 hour a week job to really do, do it right. And, and Clovis, by the way, pays its principals well. As I said, it pays its master teachers well too. So it's intelligence commitment, ability to listen, because these, you, you just got to hear what your teachers are telling you. Um, an energy like very few people have, you know, it's Elon Musk kind of energy, I think, something mm. uh, like that. Um, and they do wear out, I have to say. It's possible. Every now and then, principals need to be re recharged somehow. I, I don't know, because you just can't keep going at that uh, Energizer Bunny pace. Sure. For, sure, especially if you're expected to show up at those uh, swim meets and those athletic events and the plays, which a good, good high school principal in particular is yeah. uh, expected to do. Well, there's the joke about the woman calling upstairs, dear, dear, you've got to get up. You're going to be late for school. No, no, I don't want to get up. Why do I have to go to school? I don't want to go to school. You have to. Why? You're the principal. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a tough job. Yeah. I used to say if it wasn't for teachers, uh, students, and parents, it, you know, schools would be easy places to run. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah, so there's success, and there's certainly a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of interest in public education these days. Unfortunate, though, that when you look around, you see very hard to find a high school, a good high school principal or elementary school or middle school. Um, hard to find effective teachers. And in many cases, those principals don't have authority to hire. You know, uh, Ross, you just hit on a really important point. There are literally, for, for every principal's position in the U.S., the 100,000, which I earlier made mention, uh, there are four or five cert certified or sort of legally qualified individuals because the, the salary schedules we've got, they're paying teachers to go and take administrative courses where they would never become an administrator. So there are lots of legally qualified people, but not necessarily uh, professionally qualified. Um, and one reason that there's some talented people aren't interested in it is, is that which you mentioned, they don't get discretion to run their school. <laughs> uh, if you're scripted from the central office, it makes, then all you're doing is complying with rules. You know, uh, I am, I'm not the engine, I'm not the engineer, I can't even ring the bell, but if the train goes off the tracks, guess mm -hmm. who can as hell? Well, that's the, the principal. 
And I, I noted particularly in these big school districts in Florida, you talk about Dade County, Broward, <clears throat> Palm Beach, these huge school districts, overly large school districts, <clears throat> they are, principals are, are managed themselves and they're given these rule books and they've got to adhere to all these, these rules. They don't really run their school <clears throat> and they don't have their heart in it. They, they, and when you said overly large, it's <coughs> clear your throat. Overly large, and you made reference to fifty thousand in uh, Clovis, approximately fifty thousand students. I read somewhere, might even have been something you wrote, that we capture that economy of scale right around fifty thousand students, but there are diminishing returns, from what I understand, if you go much that's, higher than that. That's my understanding too. You you get to New York City with its hundreds of thousands. Look, just on the face of it, it isn't going to work. You know it's not going to work. It's just too big. You've lost the prospect of human interaction in these, these arrangements. Uh, I don't know quite what the ideal school district is, but it's certainly, it's certainly not 200,000 students or anything like that. It's just, it's lost its, at that point, it's lost its touch with its parents, with the electorate, um, with with human interaction and remember uh, it was a hundred years ago in the progressive era where we undertook this massive school district consolidation the united states used to have 127,000 local school districts mm -hmm. today we've got 13,500 in that range and the argument was by progressives uh Yesterday's reforms turn out too frequently to be today's problems. That's one of the difficulties. But they, they argued that if we had larger districts, we'd get economies of scale financially. Well, we haven't. We don't get that. We would get more talented individuals in them, not necessarily. Uh, we could deliver a wider variety of courses to students. That's probably true. We, we do that. But uh, along the way, we lost a sense of community in, the, in these huge districts. We haven't gotten the financial economies that were claimed for it and on and on. It was a, a well, it was a well-intended reform that has not paid off. You know, as I look back at uh, my own experience as a principal in New Jersey, uh, it was a single school district, Clinton Public School, and uh, 541 students, knew them all, and knew their families. And but in New Jersey, there are over 600 school districts, and 300 of them are single school districts. You know what you were saying before, that the, yeah, the little well, local towns just had a school, and then 14 miles away is another school. Well, the United States has, um, we've got two models of school management, the New England model and the Southern model. New England built its school districts around municipalities. And you, you have the prospect of the small entities to which you refer. In the South, the, um, the uh, counties emerged as, as the fundamental governance unit. And that's why you've got these big districts in the South that are ineffective. Jim, you've, you have given us so much to think about today. And um, I know I took tons of notes and I'm gonna actually listen to this broadcast again in, in part to pick up some of your metaphors and quick, quick whip, you know, that you continue to demonstrate. 
we're blessed to have you. And, and we're going to take a break in a moment. When we come back to Let's Reinvent Schools, we'll be hearing from Dr. Bob Goodman, the Executive Director of New Jersey Center for Teaching and Learning. Bob's going to help us answer the question, what did we learn today? And Jim, you're welcome to stay for the next 15 minutes, or if you have something else to do, um, more than happy to um, let you go. But you're, we, we'd love you to stay. I want to hear what reasonable people have to say. <laughs> okay. All right. With that, uh, I invite you to listen and learn about the good work that Meckett is doing in Charlotte, North Carolina. And if you're interested, I hope you are, visit us on the web at www.meched.org. Oh, and if you'd like to donate, there's a big donate button right on the front page. We'll see you on the other side. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. My experiences with Meked, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I think I do think Meked has invested in me, um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students. And it's like they won't go down without a fight. So Meked means opportunity. Family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the maternity center. Uh, career Pathways. We work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections and, and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would, would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not, I don't know, having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on, you know, different family. MECED's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are gonna need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we wanna make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and Mac Ed, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are.
Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. And we're back with the final segment of today's Let's Reinvent School broadcast. To react and respond to Professor Guthrie, I'm joined by an extraordinary and forward-thinking educator, Dr. Robert Goodman, the Executive Director of the New Jersey Center for Teaching and Learning. Welcome, Bob. Bob, you were a CEO of major corporations before becoming a teacher, getting a doctorate in science education, becoming New Jersey's Teacher of the Year, ultimately the founding Executive Director of the New Jersey Center for Teaching and Learning. Could you take a moment to tell our audience about the work of the center? and then we'll respond to Professor Guthrie. Sure, um, thanks very much for having me. It's a great opportunity. I really enjoyed the first two segments, listening and learning. Um, yeah, just before I talk about the center, just to, because some of my comments are gonna go back to my business background. I did have a 20 year career in business and was a executive officer of a Fortune 1000 company um, before, uh, before go, deciding to go into teaching. And so a lot of times I hear solutions to education uh, that draw upon models from business. And I'm gonna do the same, but I think I'll do it a little bit differently perhaps than is traditionally done. Uh, the New Jersey Center for Teaching and Learning is started by the Teachers Union in New Jersey, the NJEA, uh, but it supports all teaching and learning, whether it's in charter schools, public schools, homeschooling, uh, we help everyone. Uh, we're the number one producer of physics teachers in the United States. We're our top producer of chemistry teachers. We may be number one. I just can't figure out what anyone else is doing. Uh, we just got endorsed by the college board as one of the top, as one of 12 that uh, are endorsed to provide instruction and professional development for AP Computer Science A and Computer Science Principles. Does that irritate uh, universities? Uh, yeah, we, we pretty much irritate a lot of people. It's it's not uh, not uncommon for us. We, we create uh, free materials for people to use teaching and learning. So we've got 520,000 slides posted for teaching math and science at free kindergarten through second year college, free for everybody. That doesn't make us friends with textbook manufacturers particularly. Right. Uh, we've got 35,000 videos posted to help students learn. We work in Africa as well as uh, intensively in New Jersey and across the country. So we do a lot. I don't want to take the whole segment telling you yeah. what New Jersey's, but we, you, can, you can learn about us at njctl.org if you want to hear more. Um, but we really take on all facets of improving uh, teaching and learning. And we think that they're all tied together, curriculum, pedagogy, assessment, professional development of teachers, Oh, we're also a, became a um, duly uh, licensed institution of higher education in New Jersey a couple of years ago and are working to become accredited because we agree that uh, maybe there are too many graduate schools of education right now, but there's a shortage of really good ones, and we'd like to fill that gap. Mm. Yeah. So in some ways, in many ways, you agree with uh, Professor Guthrie on some of the things he said. I, I agree with uh, with Professor Guthrie. I would uh, add to it, and I think that, that my addition would be based on my business experience. Because uh, when I was in business, I, I, I think of teachers as being the equivalent of the salespeople I used to have. Uh, you could always tell my the success of our organization by the success of our salespeople, and you could always say, our, uh, the most effective salespeople uh, are the most important difference in your organization, but effective salespeople depend on 
engineers making great products and mm -hmm. uh, financial structures being in place and reasonable governance and uh, metrics for determining who is an effective salesperson. You know, I, I remember sitting once talking to a major retail chain and they said, you know, your job is easy. You just uh, figure out whose sales are going up and give them more money, uh, give that mm -hmm. salesman more money and whose sales are going down and give that salesman less money or fire them. And I pointed out, it's not really true. You know, at the time, Detroit was going through a recession. So uh, a smaller than expected decline in Detroit was a great success. Uh, but China was booming and going up 40% in China was considered failure. We, we changed our distributor because they only went up 40%. The problem, <laughs> the problem with, uh, with metrics is they take wisdom. And we've tried to create education. We've taken wisdom out of the governance of education. Uh, we're not counting on uh, good managers to make smart decisions. And partly that's to protect uh, bad managers from making bad decisions and hurting students and teachers. So we've created whole structures which make principals ineffective because they, no one trusts them to have power. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, we uh, make teachers ineffective because no one trusts them to have power. Basically, I would say it's a structure based on distrust and uh, lack of visibility or transparency. So I'm all for effective teachers being the key. Uh, I do think having effective teachers, uh, money is a part of the solution. I mean, whenever I, whenever I couldn't hire someone for a job, we just kept raising the amount we would pay them until we found someone who would take the job. It, 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 I never hear people saying that, but they say there's a shortage of teachers. No one says there's a shortage of uh, any other area. There's a shortage, you just pay more. Uh, but that by itself is not enough. And that gets back to other comments that uh, the professor made, uh, which is you also need a respectful environment um, and you need an environment where uh, the, the school or the organization, and I'd say it's the same for business as it is for uh, schools, they have to be able to have their destiny in their hands and be able mm. to show achievement. And that gets to my third element, which is assessment. Um, business is kind of simple to run because the metric for business is money. Uh, Long-term, short-term accumulation of money in your organization is a good way of seeing if your company is working well. If you're losing a lot of money and you have no prospects for ever making money, that's not a good organization. And so it's easy, you just look at your bank account, look at your projections and you can make some judgments. Even there, you have to be subtle because maybe you'd lose money for 10 years so you can make a lot of money starting in the 11th year. But in the end, it's simple. Education's hard because the metrics are learning and measurements of learning are very uh, tricky. And deciding whether a student learned because of the teacher, because of their parents, because of their overall, their previous year teacher, it all gets very complicated. It leads you to value-added models, uh, which mm -hmm. tend to be statistically flawed. Uh, ceiling effects and other things make them very uh, tricky. Um, Bob, I'm fond of, I'm fond of saying that uh, when it comes to metrics, we make important what's measurable instead of measuring what matters. Exactly. And, and also we go, uh, something that I think is terrible in education is that we've gone so deep and narrow when it comes to reading, writing, arithmetic. Mm -hmm. uh, we're judging that we say, oh, it's an effective teacher, it's an effective school. And we're judging all of it based on a very narrow standardized tests that are not only narrow, they're also very intrusive. They take up weeks of time of the school year. And, um, and the outcomes have ceiling effects that make them useless in most cases because many districts have no opportunity to do well on them and other districts just 
get almost perfect scores without trying very hard. So there's no real, they don't, they're not adaptable to the situation of the school. So I'm a big believer that, and this gets me in trouble with uh, uh, teacher union type people sometimes, or even well, a lot of, it gets me in trouble with a lot of people. I don't, I think we have, we need more tests, not fewer tests. Uh, we need to test in art and music and physics and chemistry and biology and uh, you name it, if we want a student to know it, and we believe it's important for citizens in our country to have those skills, then those should be assessed. However, the testing should be appropriate and not intrusive. It should be, uh, if it's a like a physics a should test, should be an adaptive 15 or 20 minute test that someone takes mm -hmm. to prove what they know and can do in physics. If it's an art it, test, it might be uh, posting art exhibits, uh, art, the artwork of a student on a statewide board with a, a student's, uh, a number, a student identifier, but obviously not identifying the name of the student, so that uh, teachers in other schools could vote on which is the best artwork. Uh, if you then have this way of assessing what students can know, know and can do in a broad array of things, not just reading, writing, arithmetic, then students can follow their own path. If they're really wonderful at music, but they're not as good at math, they can excel in music and that, can, that might get them into Juilliard. It, on the other hand, if they want to go to MIT, they better have some good results in physics. So mm -hmm. I call that a rich transcript model so that if a student finishes a course, they should take a state test and the state test should be unintrusive, but accurate and meaningful. Then you can start using assessments to see which schools are doing well and which mm -hmm. teachers are doing well uh, in, a, in a more open, in a, in a better, more flexible way. Then you need a governance structure, and I'd say the principle is key to this, but the principles in the middle, uh, to me, governance should flow from the bottom up. Um, when I first left business and went into teaching, people would greet me into teaching and saying, oh, thank God we have a business person here. You know, you'll, you'll, run, thing, you'll run things like a business, fire all the bad teachers, uh, tell everyone what to do, all top-down control. And I had to say, you know, that's like 1960s business. <laughs> Business hasn't been like that for 20 something years. Uh, businesses are all bottom up businesses at this point. You've got visionary leaders at the top, but you delegate lots of authority to the people in the field. And mm -hmm. people in the field are the ones who drive your organization by collecting input and moving it up. In fact, our mission statement with the New Jersey Center for Teaching and Learning is empowering teachers to lead school improvement so that all students have access to a quality education. But it starts with it really starts with the students. The teachers have to respect the students. The students have to res uh, the the principal has to respect the teachers. Uh, the superintendents have to respect the principals. I, I proposed something at a paper I wrote once that um, it was probably more controversial than anything else I've ever proposed. So it'll probably never go anywhere. But the notion of giving total authority to uh, principals to hire and fire teachers at will, get rid of tenure laws altogether. And then, but then have it, uh, the principal subject to removal by a vote of a majority of the teachers. Oh my. So- Jim, Hey Jim, are you still with us? Yes, oh, you are. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. I, I know you are, I know yeah. you are. So, so you give the authority to the principal and then you make him responsible because, or him, I say him, him or her. Um, but you gotta, you can't give someone, uh, you can't make someone responsible for something if they don't have the authority to make the changes they need to make. To make it. On the other hand, you don't want a capricious principal to come in, be appointed by a board, and just fire everyone he doesn't like and hire whoever she does like. 
but you say you have to be able to vote out capriciousness. So I think a vote of no confidence should remove a principal. Just by the way, like I think a vote of no confidence from the principals in the district or the faculty perhaps and the principals should remove a superintendent. So you put lots more power in the hands of these people. Mm -hmm. You trust them more, but part you trust and verify in the sense that you trust them more, but you know that they're subject to removal. So if they start acting crazy and stu doing stupid things, then the people who are governed by the principal of the superintendent uh, can take action. By the way, similar to the way that students, uh, we believe all our students in our courses um, take surveys at the end. They, they give us a vote on their teachers. If teachers are not assessed by their students as doing a very good job, we remove the teacher. So it, power should flow from the bottom up. And I, I believe that you have to trust people. Uh, most people, most teachers want to be part of a successful school. If they have a good principal doing good things, organized in a good way, they're gonna support unpopular decisions like getting rid of a teacher who they might people, who might be personally like, but is not doing a good job. But the principal's responsible then to explain that decision to the students, the teachers, the faculty. Everyone has to understand why the decisions are being made. And then I think schools could compete with each other. And I'm a big fan of uh, capitalism and competition. Now you've given all this authority and you've created these governance structures and you've created this network of tests and this, met this metrics. Then you, the schools go out and compete with each other to see who is the best school in New Jersey. Who's the best in physics? Who's the best in art? Who's the best in music? which is the best school in an urban environment. We, you, know, you can create all kinds of categories to compete, but let people compete. Which school showed the most improvement in music this year? Um, you can do all of those things, but I think first you need, uh, you need to, in parallel, put, to put in place governance structures that make sense, assessment metrics that make sense and are broad, not narrowly focused on just reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, and, then, and then everything else can flow from that. And then you sort of sit back and you let these processes take their go, go their way, and this is what how American business works, and this is how capitalism works, and it's made us effective. And the fact that we try to do schools without a system like that is, I think, why we struggle all the time. Bob, let me let me just gently hit a pause button and say we have about ninety seconds left. Uh, if, um, Professor Guthrie, if you have any final words, and I'll come back to you, Bob, for any final comments you might have. I don't know that they are final words. I <laughs> sure. Um, I've been out-radicalized. I love it. The, uh, I, I could uh, have conversations with Bob all day long and learn a lot, and uh, it's wonderful. I would pose the question to him, as I do myself, what would it take to get the world in place that, that he has outlined, a world with which I, I concur? But fundamentally, it, it's a political challenge. Uh, money, yes, absolutely, but it's a political challenge. I, I will say we did this at the school I first joined. Uh, the superintendent gave full power to five teachers to organize the school and, and basically tell the principal what to do at the inception. And we took a school that no one wanted to go to, to being ranked one of the mm -hmm. top 100 high schools in the United States now. Um, it was a Votech with, uh, you know, leather jackets Great and school. traditional things. Yep. You, you know the school, Ross. I do. Now it's our time one of the is, best uh, high schools. This is one of the most interesting conversations I could imagine. And both of you just really are extraordinary. Um, time has flown by. We're at the conclusion of today's episodes. We thank you both, Professor Guthrie and uh, Dr. Goodman. Thanks for listening, everyone. Join us next week, Thursday, March 31st, same time, same channel, 
as we explore different curriculum choices that parents are offered for their children that can often change the trajectory of an entire per young person's life. Until then, this is Ross Dennis, and you're listening to Let's Reinvent School on Voice America's Variety Channel. Onward. Thank you for listening to Let's Reinvent School. Tune in next week as we give you some more great insight into the state of the public education system. Until next week, class dismissed.